0: through a new series on the church and i i think for the month of september what i wanted to do is i just wanted to look at the same passage over and over again and so uh, we're going to look at first peter chapter two verses four and all the way down to verse 12 and maybe the repetition will help this will be the same passage i'm going to read for a couple of weeks this is god's word As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Uh, Last week, we started this new series on the church, and uh, some of this might be repetitive, but I just want to say it again um, because... Um, I guess everybody's here, so just to kind of be on the same page as to why we are talking about the church, which I think a lot of people may not find to be, like, the most exciting topic within Christianity, but I think is a a very important topic within the Christian faith. Uh, I basically have two reasons why I wanted to spend a season talking about the church, okay? The first reason is, like, a big-picture reason, uh, and the second reason is, like, more related to us. The big-picture reason is this. So I started reading this book called The Great Dechurching, And basically it's a book about uh, why so many people in like the last 25 years who once said, you know, they regularly attend church, uh, why so many people are now uh, leaving the church. And basically the, the authors uh, who commissioned this study, and it was supposed to be one of those uh, academic studies, um, you know, that's reviewed by a board and approved and it's nationwide, it's a quantitative study, right, all those kinds of things. Right, they said, hey, there's no actually like good data in terms of like, w- what's happening across the religious landscape of America. So they commissioned these scholars to uh, gather some data and gather some statistics, and basically the data that they gathered confirmed what they were feeling, which is basically this, that uh, we are living in a time and a period where uh, the United States is experiencing the largest and the fastest religious shift in history where people who were once formerly, uh, I would say religious because it's uh, happening across all religions, but for our purposes, people who were formerly regular c- Christian worshipers have now decided they no longer want to attend church at all. And so I think for the f- recently, for the first time in American history, I think there are now less than 50% uh, of Americans who attend church, whereas before it was always above 50%, okay? I do think there are seasons where churches have to do some self-reflection, and I suspect that this is one of those seasons. Uh, some people have said the church is a little bit like a time capsule, and if you walk into a church, tra- I was just having a conversation with um, a, a pastor friend of mine and who used to be in New York but is now in the Burbs, and he's like, it's, it's like very weird to be a, at a church in the Burbs because it feels like uh, time traveling, like you're you're living in a kind of context of like, like 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, but some people think like church is kind of a time capsule where like the values that were popular in that particular time are kind of like frozen in the church and therefore like so much so that, you know, when someone who hasn't stepped in a, a foot in a church all, all of a sudden steps foot in a church, they, they feel like that. They feel like they're traveling into the past and I'm sure churches in Manhattan uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think churches in Manhattan are so much so like that. But I'm sure if you visit, like, some churches, some kinds of churches, it can feel like that. Um, And as the context changes, I do think we start to find, like, these old conceptions of what we thought church was supposed to be and what church was supposed to look like. I think we start to understand, oh, some of these things are outdated. Some of these things were particular to a particular context and a particular time. And so last week I, I had mentioned this British missionary, and this week I just started reading more of his stuff again. And I was like, "Oh man, I I love this guy. He's like, uh, he has so many good things to say about the church." But this British missionary by the name of Leslie Newbegin, he he spent the latter part of his life trying to convince uh, churches in the West, churches in his uh, in Britain, you know, the way that you envision church uh, is is inadequate for what's coming ahead in the future. And what he saw was this rising secularism that was coming to England. You see, he had spent the 1930s through the 1950s in India as a missionary in a context where Christianity was not the majority. And now he goes back to England and he sees like how churches in England function. And he's like, you know, we, we have to do some critical self-reflection on how we think the church is supposed to be because looking at what's coming down the line, uh, these kinds of churches will not be adequate to uh, serve and to reach people Uh, who are starting to, you know, question Christian beliefs and walk away from uh, Christianity and starting to adopt, uh, you know, secular narratives and secular stories. And basically he says this, Western churches um, have to do something that it hasn't had to do for many centuries, which is discover the form and substance of the missionary church missions he says will no longer work along the stream of expanding western power so you have all these churches in the west by the way i don't i don't count like immigrant churches as a part of that narrative so um, this is kind of a broad generalization Um, but churches in the west that were built in the west and built along this uh, stream where western power was um, was on the rise what he says is like hey that's not going to be the future anymore so he says this and in this situation we shall find that the New Testament speaks to us much more directly than does the 19th century as we learn afresh what it means to bear witness to the gospel from a position not of strength, but of weakness. And he's writing as a British guy, as someone who grew up in the immigrant church, and I know many of you maybe grew up in an immigrant context. I read that and I think, hey, you know what? I think then churches who have been on the margins, like immigrant churches and minority churches, probably have a lot to offer, Uh, during this season uh, in terms of what it means to be a church from a position of weakness and that's why I think like churches like ours and uh, I think the immigrant churches that a lot of us grew up in and uh, the churches that uh, our parents you know were a part of I actually think there's a lot of lessons there in terms of how to be church that will uh, be applicable to the season we are living now in American history now the second reason I wanted to talk about the church is because of the particular season uh, our church is in. I think there's a lot of potential for us to be in a season of self-reflection as well because there's a lot of changes and transitions happening here as well. Some of these changes were unexpected, like moving abruptly, right? Losing our previous base and and moving here to this new location uh, as a change. Um, But you know, there's a lot of other changes that are happening. uh, So I think this is actually a good time to be asking What are we supposed to be as a church? What is God's vision for a church? And if we kind of filter out maybe some of the consumer visions of what a church is supposed to be, where, you know, like bigger is better, faithfulness means like growing in size and growing in influence and growing in power and all of those things, I think what we'll find is that either we are, right, the kind of church that God envisions or we we can be the kind of church that God envisions from this passage. That's why I think there's a lot of potential for this passage to encourage us, and encourage us in particular, because I, I read this passage and I go, oh, well, you know, a lot of what God wants the church to be, I, I see here at good news. Now, in this passage, Peter he is basically trying to construct, uh, let's call it an identity, identity of the church. Uh, there's this Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf, and he wrote this article on First Peter, and I, I thought he said something really insightful. He says, you know. Uh, There are two ways that we can forge an identity. So we can either forge it through a negative process or we can forge it through a positive process. Negative process, he says, is this process of where you reject other people's beliefs and you reject other people's practices and you kind of form an identity based on what you reject. Or you can do it through a positive process where you give allegiance to something that is distinctive. And he says, you know, when you forge an identity through a negative process, And here's what I would say. I would say political tribes are probably a good example of that. Here's what you end up doing. You end up necessarily alienating people because they are not like you. And so Volt would say when identity is forged in that way, what you have to do necessarily is you got to push other people away. You got to keep them at a distance in order to keep ourselves pure. And I would say a lot of group identity is forged in that way. I would say churches have also forged identity in that way. And what Wolf would say is this, look, in order for a church to live faithfully within the tension of being in the world, but not of the world, of being faithful in its mission, he would say it's it's pretty important to make sure we forge an identity based through a positive process. And I think what we could say is that's what Peter's doing here. The church's identity is not so much based on what we are against, but it's based on Jesus, our cornerstone. And from that, we are given these identities such as chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. And the call of the church then is to live out that identity that we have been given. So September, what I'd like to do, spend uh, some time looking at this passage uh, in greater detail. Last week, we started talking about how the church is the new temple, the very dwelling place of God. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what it means that um, God says we are a priesthood, a royal priesthood. You look at verse 5, Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, Peter again says collectively, what are we? We are a royal priesthood. So what, what does that mean, that we are a royal priesthood? Uh, in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, a priest is someone who is like a mediator between right, God and the people. The priests were the ones who would go into the temple. They would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. They, were, uh, they would uh, intercede on behalf of the people. They would make uh, sacrifices for the atonement of sin on behalf of the people so that the people can be in right relationship with God and uh, the priest was just uh, an individual who had a particular job function within the temple, and that's that's not exactly what Peter is talking about here. Of course, it's related to a priest, but Peter isn't talking about priest as an individual identity. He's actually talking about a collective identity, the priesthood. And therefore, what we should really be asking is, well, who was uh, supposed to be the priesthood in the Old Testament? And the answer is, well, the entire nation of Israel was supposed to be the priesthood. Exodus 19 uh, is a very important backdrop to this passage. Because in Exodus 19, the people of Israel, they were uh, out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness of Sinai. And while they camped there, Moses went up the mountain and then God spoke to him. And this is what God said to Moses, who was in turn supposed to pass along this message to the people. God says to Moses... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, You you hear echoes of 1 Peter 2 in that, right? You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Nation. So, the church is like the new Israel in a way. We assume the identity that Israel was supposed to have. Exodus 19, God says, They shall be a kingdom of priests, or to put it another way, they shall be (coughs) a royal priesthood. What were they supposed to do as a royal priesthood? Well, basically, they were supposed to create the possibility of a relationship between God and his people. Actually, God and the nations you, you start to read the old test <coughs> excuse me i should have brought my water i forgot it you start to read the old testament and you kind of think like oh is god just for this one nation the people of israel uh it, all the focus seems to be on israel but actually god had a bigger plan israel was supposed to be kind of like the mediator between god and the nations god's blessings was supposed to go to the nations through israel And the implication of what that means is that was God's plan all along. God wanted to redeem the entire world. God wanted to redeem all people. God wanted to redeem all nations. And his desire is for all people to know him and to fill the entire earth with his glory. And so you have this commission in mind as you read through the history of the Old Testament. And maybe you start to think, oh, okay, so Israel is supposed to um, basically... uh, you know, share uh, what God is saying to the nations. How is that going to happen? You start reading through the Old Testament. Oh, maybe, maybe it's going to happen when Israel becomes this great and powerful nation, this great and powerful kingdom. So you start to go through the history, which is what we're doing Bible study, which I'm consciously trying to connect to Bible study. Right? What happens under the reign of King David? It's like, oh, the kingdom gets uh, bigger and stronger and stronger and unified. And it's like, oh, that's how uh, Israel, that's how God's going to bless the nations. But then you start to see cracks in that plan. Sin starts to divide the royal family. Idolatry starts to enter into Israel. The kingdom divides. And then they are overtaken by foreign powers. Jerusalem sacked. Temple's destroyed. People of God are exiled. So maybe that's not the way God would do it. Maybe that's not the way God would display his glory to the nations. But you see, this is why the coming of Jesus was so significant. Because where Israel failed to fulfill its role as a kingdom of priests, Jesus comes and he fulfills it. He's the one who ultimately opens a door for the nations to have access to God's blessings. Jesus is the one who uh, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven like we just said in the Apostles' Creed, and then sends the Holy Spirit to fall upon the church so that now Jew and Gentile can come and be the people of God. We just went over that when we went through the book of Acts. And now the church continues that identity. We are the royal priesthood. The nice thing is uh, uh, the other aspect of the passage that talks about how Jesus is a cornerstone means that we're not actually in the same position that Israel was in in Exodus 19, but because Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfilled what Israel failed to do uh, which is why we live in an age where the nations now know God, uh, we still carry on that title of royal priesthood, but maybe not in the same way that Israel did. So let's flesh out what that means then. What does it mean that the church is a royal priesthood? I think what it means is this. As a church, what we should be always doing is we should be interceding on behalf of people. Uh we should always be praying for people in our community, and we should always be praying for our city, always. That's, that's one of our main functions as a church. That's what we should be doing. You know, I've shared this before, <coughs> but um, you know, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, uh, she always would point out you know, when they planted Redeemer, there were already hundreds of people praying for New York. Now, why were they praying for New York back in uh, the 1980s? Well, they were praying because they had people had sons and daughters who went to New York and stopped going to church and fell away from God. They had grandsons and granddaughters who came to New York and stopped going to church and fell away from God. They had nieces and nephews and friends who were living in New York and didn't know Christ anymore. And so because of that, hundreds of people were praying for those particular people, and they were so excited when... They heard, oh, a new church is going to be planted in New York City, and they lifted up so many prayers. And so Kathy Keller says, you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I think it's actually kind of true. She says, look, if you want to grow a church, uh, it's it's pretty simple. Go to a place where uh, a lot of people are praying for (laughs) it and where God is about to move, right? And I think that's right. And if that is right, I think it's crucial that, the church is praying for people and on behalf of people. I think we should constantly be praying for people that we know, that we love, that we care for, who maybe don't know Christ. I think we should constantly, you know, in our prayer meetings, we, we do pray for a lot for our children. Uh, and by the way, in that book, The Great Dechurching, um, <coughs> one of the chapters says, uh, one of the reasons why uh, contributing to the Great Dechurching is, uh, that um we haven't passed on the faith to our kids (laughs) so a lot of the people who are leaving are leaving because uh i guess the previous generation didn't really do an adequate job of passing on faith uh, to the next generation i think that's real right i think that's why uh, we should always mm, be very conscious of uh, the younger kids who are here and discipling them Uh, I think that's why we should always be praying for our kids, and I think that's a large part of the intercession, intercession that we are called to do as a royal priesthood. Now, look, I, I know we all have, like, needs, and I know there's a lot of things that we need to pray for in our lives, uh, and there's, like, nothing wrong with that, and of course we should be praying, but I think if there's not an element where we're actually not praying for our particular needs, um, or we're always praying for our particular needs, and we're not really praying for, like, things that uh, are not related to us directly, like, praying for uh, the city, uh, praying for the communities that we inhabit, praying for maybe people we know and people we love to know Christ, I don't think we're actually fulfilling the role that we are supposed to have as intercessors uh, as a royal priesthood. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I think uh, one of the ways that we fulfill the role as royal priesthood is, uh, is actually through our praise. Uh, I think we should praise God authentically, and we should praise God constantly, and we should praise God delightfully. Uh, There's a phrase in here that I think maybe is a little bit easy to gloss over, but if you really think about what it actually means, I I don't know if it's so clear. So it's a phrase found in verse 5, spiritual sacrifices. That's what we're supposed to do as a holy priesthood, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I read that. I asked myself, okay. Okay. We're supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices. What does that actually mean, though, right? Uh, In the Old Testament, it's like, oh, you offer sacrifices, you offer the blood of animals. That's, That's like a very little thing to do. But in the New Testament, right, the church, what does it actually mean to offer a spiritual sacrifice? There's a place in Hebrews 13, I think that might give us some insight, and it says this, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I think one of the ways that we offer a spiritual sacrifice is actually through our praise. Interesting, right? In my opinion, the most compelling case that someone could make for seeking God is not going to be in an argument, but I think it's going to be in our disposition of praise. It's like if someone says, hey, there's this restaurant, and I think you should try this restaurant because, let me, let me give you the argument here, uh, they sourced their ingredients from this uh, farm, so it's like super pure. And the chef learned under, I don't even know any famous chefs, so I'm just going to say so-and-so, right? Uh, the chef learned, learned under so-and-so, and because of this, you should go to this restaurant. And it's like, okay, maybe I'll check it out, but it's not like a very compelling reason to say, oh, I got to go check out this restaurant. But what if you ate at this restaurant and now you tell people, man, this meal, it, it changed my life right? <laughs> uh, this meal uh, with every course that came, oh man, it just tasted so good and things just got better and better. I put the food in my mouth and like the texture and the flavors, uh, it just made me feel like, you know, if this was my last meal, oh, I would die a happy person, right? That's a little bit more compelling. And what, what's the difference between the two things? I think one is more of like, well, he, th- these are the reasons why you should uh, go to this restaurant versus the other is like, man, uh, I just want to praise this restaurant because it was so good, Praise is actually very powerful because praise communicates delight and there is, there should be no greater delight than knowing God. There's a place in 1 Corinthians 14 where it talks about the gift of prophecy and uh, the way I would define prophecy is as a word of encouragement. In that passage, Paul says this, like when you come together, each one has a hymn, has a lesson, has a revelation, has a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all of these things things be done for building up. And I don't exactly know like what the early church looked like and how they gathered and how they worshiped together, but Paul seems to allude to the fact that, hey look, when an unbeliever entered into the Christian gathering and they witnessed uh, these words of prophecy or perhaps any of these forms that Paul is talking about, that person had, a, had the potential to fall on their face and worship God and declare that God is really among you. And you think about that, like why would somebody just walk into a gathering like that and then all of a sudden say, oh, God must be among you. And I think it, part of it at least has to do with the fact that, again, the church is the temple. And how are people going to see God, know God, know that God is actually real? I think one of the ways is in the Christian gathering through the collective worship of his people. There is just something powerful about that where people see it and there's a sense that, oh, I can feel something here. I can feel God's presence in this place. Now, I go to the same uh, the same guy who cuts my hair. And uh, whenever I get my hair cut, a lot of times, uh, I'll be honest with you, we talk about golf because uh, he loves golf too. And uh, I just got into golf. But sometimes we actually talk about faith. And he's not a Christian believer, but he said he, he visited a, a Uh, church a couple of times and so i was just curious i asked him so when you visited this church like you know how was it for you what did you think what did you feel and he said well i was like very moved by the singing i was very moved by the sincerity of people singing in church and i just kind of looked at people as they were singing and they seemed to be filled with so much joy and so much delight uh, as they were singing these songs and, uh, you know, I'm not really sure, like, what I believe or if, like, God is real. But here's what he said. He's like, but you know what? I wish I could have what these other people had. And I think that's the power of praise. And if that's the case, I do think more uh, Christians, I think when we look, think about the church and we think about a Sunday service, uh, probably not folks in this room, but uh, I think it's like, again, the v- consumer model is like you go to a service and you receive uh, like what the service has to offer, and then you kind of go back. And there's no sense of like, I'm actually here to to participate and to give. And what am I giving? I'm giving my song. Right? I'm giving my praise. And collectively with the people of God, as we praise together, then we become a place where God dwells and inhabits. I think that's one of the the ways in which uh, we can become a powerful testimony to who god is one of the ways in which we make god real to people Um, this time right uh this time i think is an incredibly important time and uh it's not just about like one person or who's like leading the songs or one person who is Uh, giving the sermon or giving the message collectively it's like all of us right we're singing to God together we're singing to one another hymns uh, and spiritual songs and Ephesians 5 says that's how we become filled with the Holy Spirit I think our singing is something that is crucial to um, how we fulfill again our role as a royal priesthood I think maybe that's why in uh, someplace like Revelation chapter 5, you have this vision of the heavenly throne room. And what is what is the primary activity that people are doing, engaged in? They're singing, right? What are they singing? They are singing, worthy. Worthy are you, our Lord, our God. Worthy are you, God, to take the scroll and open its seals. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Now, let me be honest, and maybe some, like, uh, some folks in here can relate to this. I used to... Uh, not like singing just in general especially in church Uh, I used to think singing was kind of lame and uh, when I was like a I don't know probably in high school I have this very distinct memory I think I shared it before I have this very distinct memory of like in the worship service I would just like sit in the back like this and everybody was (laughs) singing and then I would just be like oh man I don't want to be here I don't want to do this And then an elder coming behind me and, like, slapping me in the back. It's like, stand up. What are you doing? (laughs) I was like, whoa, take it easy. Take it easy. Right? I I was not a a singing person. I did not see the usefulness of of singing. But here's what happened. Uh, The more I think I engaged in worship and the more I actually sang, I think this is probably part of how I came to the realization, oh, I think God is real. And, oh, I think I'm a Christian now. It was actually through singing. It was through a song. Singing that song, knowing you, there is no greater thing. I remember uh, singing that song, and there was something about participating and singing that song that made that song real to me, and I distinctly remember having that thought, hey, I think I'm a Christian now, right? I think I know God now. Uh, singing is very powerful. I think it's one of the most formative practices uh, that makes God real to us. And uh, in retrospect, I think it's because God inhabits the praise of His people, When we praise together, there's something that happens where God becomes so real to us. So real to us. So, what does it mean to be a royal priesthood? It's pretty simple. I think we just need to make sure we're, ensure we're praying for people, right? Uh, People, I don't know, maybe make like a journal, right? People we care about saying, oh man, this person uh, doesn't know Christ. Uh, This person struggling in their relationship with god whatever it might be for people who are not able to pray for themselves and maybe seek god for themselves that's the job of the church we gotta help them do the heavy lifting and, and pray for them but two i think we gotta praise god with sincerity deeply yes on sundays but i guess whenever we have a chance with our words and with our songs and as we do that Let's see what God does, and that's all it is, right? Let's see what God does. Let's see what people feel. Let's see what people experience. Let's see how God shows up in people's lives. And at the end of the day, I think that's it. Then we don't become manipulative, and we don't emotionally manipulate people. We don't like doing that, right? Um, Then we don't, um, you know, use from a position of power, oh, you got to do this. That doesn't work either. At the end of the day, if God is going to be real to people, He's gonna show up to people, and we can't control that. But we can set up the altar through our praises, and set up, set it up so that God comes down and dwells with us. So here's what I suggest. Um, let's sing. Let's praise. Uh, and as we do, just consciously think. This is what we're supposed to do as a church. Uh, This is how we're a royal priesthood. This is how uh, God dwells. This is how we have a sense that God is near to us. Uh, This is how God works in our hearts. This is how God forms us. This is what God calls us to do as a church. This is how we are a witness and a testimony to the world for who God is and what he has done. We sing praise. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll sing, sing some songs. God, we... Um, I don't know, we live in such an individualistic kind of culture. We've been formed by so many ideas that are just focused on uh, the individual that... Sometimes we, uh, we make our faith about uh, us individually and what we do and what we want and what we're called to individually. And of course, there is a place for that. But God, there's also a place of understanding that we are part of something greater than ourselves, that we are living stones being built up into the temple where our cornerstone is our Lord Jesus Christ. That it's not just about one person or or one stone, but it's about together what we are composed of and what we are called to do together. We are the church, God. And what that means is we are your dwelling place. What that means is we are your royal priesthood. And God, as your royal priesthood, we want to be faithful to that call. We want to pray for this city, New York, filled with millions of people who need to know you. And we want to be a people that can sing your praise in times of blessing, in times of hardship, in times of stress and anxiety in times of fear, in times of joy and delight. We want to sing your praises because no matter what our circumstances are, you will always be worthy, worthy of our song, worthy of our praise. Use our praises as a testimony into this city and the people around us. Of how good you are. And we ask God that you show up, you make your presence known, you give the conviction of heart, so that people would, um, you know, just like in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, fall down on their face and say, God must be among you. We long for that, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.